But anyway, good afternoon. good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. It's hard to believe we got three weeks left, including today, right? We are winding it up. Um, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Thank you again, God, as always, for bringing us together on this Monday uh, to dig deeper into your word and what it has to say to us, what it had to say to us back then and what it is saying to us today, the way that those might be similar and the way that those might be different as well. So we ask that you bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are doing part two of the, of the deep skim <laughs> over a whole host of letters, some of which are super short, which is why... We only talk about them a little bit, um, but, but as you know, we are, we are kind of wrapping up everything in the New Testament today, not, um, not Revelation. And then we'll spend the next two weeks looking specifically at Revelation. Um, dun, dun, dun. And we'll go from there. So we're going to jump into the book of Hebrews. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, if you want to kind of go and open like that, we are be doing some flipping around. Again, we're talking about, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight letters in the next 55 minutes. So buckle up. <laughs> All right. So um, as we talked about last time, uh, it was very common for people in this era um, who were not named Paul to write letters and uh, call themselves Paul, and that was perfectly fine and acceptance, uh, accepted. Um, and these letters were often intended to encourage the faithful given whatever circumstances they might be in. Hebrews and the general epistles, which are the other ones we're going to talk about, are letters that were not addressed to individual churches as are most of the letters that we have studied up to this point. But they were directed to the Christian community as a whole. So anyone who would want to read these letters kind of thing is what they were done. So the general epistles, sometimes you will see them called the Catholic epistles, are James, Jude, 1st and 2nd Peter, and 1st and 2nd, 3rd John. Now, the word Catholic, and we're gonna, I can't remember, I think we'll talk about this later to, today, but I'll just go ahead and say, anyone know what the word Catholic means? Universal, exactly. So, for instance, when we say in Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, we're not pledging to the Pope. Um, we are saying that the Church is universal. So that um, kind of, kind of the, same, the same meaning here. I beat myself to it. So, James, Jude, and the Peters, and the Johns, we're going to talk about in a little bit, but we're going to first do a deep dive into the book of Hebrews. Um, this letter is a little bit of a misnomer. It is really more of a sermon, a very long sermon, I might add. Um, you would probably not want to sit and listen to this, somebody read this out, a sermon. Um, and it's, again, it's not addressed to anyone in particular. Uh, it was almost certainly not written by Paul, uh, written by what one commentator Harris calls an accomplished stylist. So someone that knew how to use language and express. But the, 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 the language, the, 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 the words used are just vastly different from what the Apostle Paul uh, indicated. Um, combines allegorical interpretations of the Hebrew Bible with Greek philosophy. So we are starting to see this and will continue to see this as Christianity spreads beyond 
uh, the, the Jewish world, if you will, into more Gentile uh, areas uh, that, that are influenced by uh, you know, Greek philosophy and Greek thinking, um, you will start finding people like Hebrews sort of taking the two and meshing them together. It's inevitable. Okay, it happens anywhere in our faith. Um, I mean, we do that now. We've been doing that forever. Um, written for the Christian community at large sometime between 65 and 100 CE. So again, what other things are happening or being written around this time? Does anyone remember? The four apostles. Yep, yep, the four gospels were written. Paul's the latter part of Paul's letter, some of the ones we talked about last week. So, just, just as sort of a context. I should have a diagram that has all the letters lined up. It might be helpful to see. Um, the good old outline that we have here. <clears throat> um, the bulk of the letter, as we're going to talk about, is the case that the writer's making about the superiority of Christ. And, 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 and in particular, three things that... Christ is superior over. We'll go into more detail about that. We end up the letter last couple of chapters of kind of this keep, keep the faith, stay strong. Um, you're not the first one uh, that's, that's, that's done this. Uh, others have done it. You can do it too. And then things along the line of a letter, but, but, uh, but, not, but not quite of sort of blessings to be sent in general. Okay? All right. So, as I mentioned before, Hebrews is really approaching its perspective on things with a dualistic view. Um, The writer was equally acquainted with Greek versions of the Hebrew Bible, so what we would call our Old Testament, and Greek philosophy. So the writer of Hebrews has a pretty solid understanding of some of the the Old Testament concepts, and you will see that uh, a lot of names brought up, stories brought up, that kind of stuff. But the writer assumes a sort of a dualistic worldview that's very Platonic, Greek philosophy. <clears throat> this idea of the eternal realm up here, which is a spiritual realm. And then this sort of inferior world that's in constant flux and change. This sort of above and below, above and below thinking, which is honestly probably the way a lot of us think today. This is didn't come from Hebrews per se, but it came from the same thinking and philosophy that informed Hebrews. Okay, um, you, we will get to uh, this understanding about priests. Priests is referred to a lot in the book of Hebrews, and. A priest sort of functioned as a mediator between both of these realms, and in a in a in a in a Hebrew Bible perspective between God and uh, humanity. So, uh, priest becomes a really important concept in the Book of Hebrews. Hebrews presents Jesus as a heavenly priest, and is the only document we have in our New Testament that really does this. It's sort of this high priest. Again, that was borrowing images and languages from, from old school uh, Hebrew Bible Israelite ways of thinking. And Jesus is the high, high priest that acts as a mediator between the two, linking these two realms together. Okay? 
Um, there's real, there's no, there's no mention or really understanding or image in Hebrews of Jesus as Messiah. Because his influence is trying to communicate a very Hebrew concept in a, in a, in a world dominated by Greek philosophy. Messiah would just not have really clicked with that at all. Okay? So, we have three examples of how Hebrews, we have three images that the writer of Hebrews lifts up to make the case for Christ's superiority. The first regards angels. Christ is superior to the angels as the mediator. Um, the role of angels in uh, the context of this faith was that me- they were mediators of God's word and the law of Israel and attendants in the heavenly court. That was kind of the understanding of angels. Okay, And Jesus has superior, superior, superiority over them. So if you want to take a look at chapter 2, verse 9, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What, is that, what does that lowering of the angels sound like if you were in church yesterday? Is that, they may remember the passage that I preached on from Philippians about emptying himself out and kind of a thing. Um, it's that same basic concept that, that, that in order for Jesus to be exalted, Jesus has to undo himself in a, in a way. Made lower than the angels is how Hebrews tacks on to it. Um, and what the writer of Hebrews does to support this is sort of gathers, quote-unquote, evidence from mostly the Psalms. Um, and, and again, this goes back to the commentator, sort of an accomplished stylist was the way they described Hebrews. This writer is laying the case out very uh, logically that... Um, about Jesus being superior to the angels. And so you can read it for yourself, but all these quotations uh, from the Psalms that if you look in your Bible, it's that sort of stanza style um, like a lot of the Psalms are. Um, And in each of the instances where where the case for Jesus' superiority is made, it is followed up with a moral exhortation. That is usually the cue for that in Hebrews is the word therefore. So, for instance, take a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters. Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore. Therefore. So, this undergirds an important thing that followers of Jesus are really being faced with doing in the latter part of the first century and beyond. And we'll see this in some of the other letters we're looking today. And that is learning how to live a life reflecting of what it is that Jesus does for us. Because, and we've talked about this before, Jesus has been dead now for 30, 40, whatever years, 50, 60 years. He had not come back yet. So I, for a while followers of Jesus, we're not really having, or not really devoting a lot of time to thinking about what it means to live like a follower of Jesus, because they just assumed Jesus would come back before they really had to focus on that. Well, now, that's not happening yet. So, they're actually having to think about, oh, wow, okay, so what does it mean 
to be a follower of Jesus? How does all this theology, this understanding of God, play itself out in how I live my life? So what you find in Hebrews, and then again some of the other ones we'll do, is sort of making that extra step about what it means to live as a person following Jesus. So, the moral exhortation that is communicated in regards to Christ's superiority to angels is to pay attention to, to heed Jesus' mediation purpose above the angels. That Jesus is the one that we uh, lean on when we, are tr- when we want to connect with this otherly uh, unchanging realm above us. Kind of thing. Okay. So the second area that Christ is superior to is to Moses. Again, we are tapping into someone who is very well-versed and wants to pull in all of this Hebrew Bible, Old Testament stuff in the midst of all this Greek philosophy. Um, So Christ before was the mediator. Here Christ is the prophet. Um, Moses here is depicted in a lot of ways as a prophet. We don't always think of Moses as a prophet because of the age of the prophets. If you remember from we talked Old Testament, didn't come till much later. But in some ways, he was prophetic in the sense of proclaiming a message to the people. So, in the Hebrew Bible, Mo- Moses is the first and most famous prophet who speaks God's words to God's people. What was the word? Uh, four, four words uh, that, that, that God spoke to uh, Pharaoh through Moses. Let my people go. Right, exactly. Okay? So, Moses is awesome. Moses is the first prophet. Guess what? Jesus is better. That's essentially what what it is. All right? So, once again, we find uh, the person, uh, the writer of Hebrews, making mention of a lot of things. So, take a look at 3 verse 7. All right? We get... um, Verbiage here that harkens back to Exodus, which is, of course, a powerful image when, it, when, you're, when you're talking about Moses. To make the case that as great as Moses was, Jesus is better. And then chapter 4, verse 1, we get our, our therefore moral exhortation. Um where basically what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says is, listen to the words of Jesus, and don't be like Pharaoh, whose heart was hardened. So, again, you just have this really neat way of the writer of Hebrews recontextualizing this Old Testament uh, image, very powerful image. To, to people, by the way, most of whom would not have necessarily connected with this in the way if this is, if, I mean, this going to a Gentile church would not have been, they would have been maybe familiar with the story of Exodus and Moses, but it certainly wouldn't have spoke to them like if it went to the Jewish Christian community. Um, but, that, but, the, but Hebrews is writing to sort of all the mix. So, Christ is superior to the angels. Christ is superior to Moses. This is a new one. Christ is superior to Aaron. Remember who Aaron was? Anyone remember who Aaron was? Moses' Moses's helper. Yep. Brother. Brother and helper. Was, was kind of the priest of it all. So, Christ was the mediator. Christ is the 
uh, what was the last one? Prophet. <laughs> and also, Christ is the high priest. As great as Aaron was, right there for Moses, doing all that kind of stuff, Jesus is better. Okay? So, the priest was also another way of understanding of kind of medi- a mediator between God and humanity. Uh, and Jesus is the high priest. So, if you want to take a look at four, uh, 14 through 16, this is sort of one of the classic lines, classic sections of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, the moral exhortation that we get uh, from this one, in chapter 6, verse 1, we get another therefore, uh, to go forward in perfection, which is a loaded word, <laughs> um, and to mature in the faith, is the moral exhortation that we get there. We get kind of an interesting coda, uh, if you will, in chapter 7, to tack on to this, we're, we're stepping a little out of the routine we've seen in the prior two. We get sort of this tack on at the end. The superiority of Christ's priesthood is even so over the Levitical priesthood that's represented in Aaron and Melchizedek. All right. Show of hands, people who are intimately familiar with Melchizedek. <laughs> exactly. Who is he? So, this was the priest who blessed Abraham in the Old Testament. Which is interesting because it was technically before there was such a thing as a priest and the priesthood through the line of Levi. Um, But he is mentioned, this is like, he gets mentioned in that part of the Bible and then he gets mentioned in the letter of Hebrews. But, I mean, the writer of Hebrews is like going, he's doing a deep dive into this priest thing. Um, Ten times total mentioned, eight alone in Hebrews. So he is, really likes him a lot. So the way that Hebrews uses him is he's kind of a representative figure, sort of sees him as, like, like it says here, the grandfather of all priests. All right? And, of course, the case being that this very first priest, the grandfather of all priests, whatever like that, Jesus is even better than him. So it starts off with this thing about, how, about Aaron, and then Hebrews, the right of Hebrews kind of slides Melchizedek in to just bring a, an exclamation point to what he's trying to say. Okay? So, superiority of Christ in three ways. I've laid the case out for each one, and then I'm going to tell you what the, how, the, what, how that should impact the way that you live your life. So, it's just very well thought out, very systematic way of kind of going through this. Okay? So, this, the other part of Hebrews that gets a lot of airtime. It's this wonderful section. Turn to chapter 11, verse 1. We get this chronology of faith. Is, is I remember we're reading what one commentator referred to it as, and I love that. And the point of this is to inspire followers of Jesus to keep the faith, quite literally, and to remind them that if, if they ever hit a rough patch, 
they're not the first one. That's that's not the, they're not the first person to do so. Um, so, chapter eleven, verse one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Indeed, by faith our ancestors received approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice in Canaan's. Uh, You go down to verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he did not experience death. Verse 7, by faith Noah. 8, by faith Abram. He spends a lot of time talking about Abraham. All the way to 23, by faith Moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth. Um, In 29, the entire Israelite nation gets a shout out. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea. 31 is interesting. Why is 31 interesting? By faith Rahab. 31. The prostitute, yeah. But what's, what's even more impressive about that? She was of another nation. Correct. She was not Israelite. So think about this. A person not of faith gets a shout out for their faith. That's kind of nifty. And then 32, I love this. He says, there are so many of the people I can't list them. And then he lists them. That's like, that's like when I say something like, my sermon's really short today. I just got to say this, and then 10 minutes later, I'm done talking. So, you go all the way over to verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What a beautiful image. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What an interesting way of explaining Jesus who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So, we get this big, long who's who of the Hebrew Bible, and this sort of formulaic presentation by faith, and then whatever the name is, and then their story of what it was they did. Um, And, you know, you list all these kind of people here, um, mostly men, but as indicated before, you do get a shout-out from Rahab, who again um, was not an Israelite. Um, and then, not surprisingly, a therefore. Therefore, here's what this means for how you live your life as a follower of Jesus. Run the race. Persevere. Stick to it. Don't give up. That kind of thing. It's really marvelous because The writer is tying the reader or the readers in making them feel a part of something that long precedes them. I mean, they are a part of this team, (laughs) if you want to look at it that way, right? They belong somewhere. So stick it out. They they have an identity, and that's, that's, I think, really important. Okay? So Hebrews is more of a sermon than anything. No particular audience, just sort of the Christian community. Um, very doubtful that Paul, that we know, penned it. Uh, allegorical interpretation of the Hebrew Bible with Greek philosophy, this sort of merging of these two worldviews. Um, Jesus says the new high priest superior to the angels. Um, 
and, and the others and followers of Jesus are part of the clouds of witnesses. So that's kind of what this letter is intending to do. All right. Any questions on that? Let's move on. Let's talk about some other letters. Um, James follows Hebrews. So just flip to the end of Hebrews and there's James very conveniently. Doesn't always happen that way, does it? Um, All right. James is one of the seven Catholic or general epistles. Um, Tradition has sort of always thought that uh, this was James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote this letter. Um, We do know historically that James, the brother of Jesus, did become a leader of the church in Jerusalem. But, and again, based on what is going on in this letter and the things that are talked about and discussed, um, more than likely it was written much later. So we have here another situation, like with Paul, where someone will kind of borrow Paul's names to give their writing credence and credibility doing the same thing here with Jesus' brother. Okay? Um, That's a case, and more than likely it is we're talking latter part of the first century, which again, is right around the time for context that the Gospel of John was written. Um, I think even Luke maybe. Um, Luke maybe a little bit earlier before that. I can't remember exactly. Um, Jewish Christian anthology. So this was written uh, to a general audience, but maybe most specifically um, to a Jewish Christian audience in mind with a lot of ethical instruction, again, now that we're 50, 60 years into Jesus not coming back, how do we live as followers of Jesus? So there's a lot of ethical exhortations um, of faith and love in particular. Okay. The thing that, 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 that pops up a lot in James is the idea of works in Christian faith. And specifically, how one wrestles with issues in the faith community of favoritism and discrimination that are primarily centered around issues of wealth and poverty. I think a lot of people kind of know James as sort of the works righteous gospel. We'll talk about that in a second. But what you may not have known is the context that it's written to, of this sort of uh, friction um, between uh, people in, 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 in a congregation that were getting preferential treatment because they had bigger wallets. Okay? Um, a real important thing to understand, and this gets to a little bit of the whole works thing we'll talk about, is this letter is not written to new people of faith. This letter is written to established Christian people um, who, who are acting in a way that the writer does not think is right and frankly, as, as he would probably put it, should know better. <laughs> I like that. Um, so it's a higher, this, it, this is like uh, the 200 level course, 300 level course of Christianity. This is not the intro stuff. Okay? Um, there's no outline to show you. I know you're going to lament that um, because it's kind of all over the place. There's no real uh, uh, flow or coherence to the letter that might suggest, uh, scholars, some scholars have thought that that might suggest 
then it's kind of an assembly of fragments. We've seen that done before with other letters, so that's not anything new. But it sort of bounces around and doesn't really flow any one particular way. Okay? All right. So, favoritism and discrimination. Um, take a look at 2, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism, which the Greek word there, I can't remember what the exact Greek word is, but the Greek word is, is something more along the lines of discrimination. They're kind of tied together. Do you with your acts of discrimination really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Ouch. Um, and then here's a, here's a perfect example. He's calling them out. For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly... And if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please. While to the other who is poor, you say, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, <clears throat> going for the jugular in that sort of way. Um, dividing lines among rich and poor. Uh, apparently those with a lot of money were getting special attention that others uh, weren't as much. Um, so, um, in verse 5b, following that, what we just read, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Anyone remember what gospel that reminds? Does that ring a bell in any particular gospel, going back to the gospel? My guess is Luke. Yeah. Remember Luke talking about you know the dispossessed and the downtrodden and the marginalized and those without voice, that being what Jesus and writing to an audience of people pretty well off. So the same similar vibe here um, in that. And so what we find here in this uh, latter part here, um, verse nine. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the laws as transgressors. Transgressors. So. Uh, what, what the writer James is making the case for is that um, in the Christian community, we, we all need to be treated the same. You're not being uh, partial in the, in the way that you... You ought to be impartial in the way that you act and interact. <clears throat> um, James is one of the most brutal letters when it comes to calling out the wealthy, um, which might be why... In the Western Church, it's not preached on a whole heck of a lot. It says a preacher. So, um, something, something to think about. Saying that to me as much as anyone. <clears throat> so, the latter part of chapter 2 is where we really get into this whole thing about the whole works. Um, take a look at chapter 2, verse 14. Because this is, this is, where, this is um, what we're speaking of. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, as one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. All right, so this is where James, uh, James uh, gets a lot of, uh, of people on his back um, for promoting a works righteousness kind of doctrine, which essentially says that I am made more right or righteous 
by doing good deeds. That's what some people suggest that James is saying here. All right. Um, Martin Luther was one that just railed on James. He wanted James tossed out of the cannon. Um, he just just leveled on, on, on James because that's, that's what he saw as that. Um, and so faith in this perspective, in this view, is sort of secondary because what, what really defines uh, our relationship with God is that we show it in how we live our lives. Now, Paul... If you look at it that way, you would see that in one corner and Paul in the other corner. They both got boxing gloves on, ready to duke it out kind of a thing, right? Because Paul was all about salvation by faith through the grace of Jesus Christ. That was what Paul said countless of times through there. All right. So this is what James gets known for a lot. But one of the things I think we ought to, we ought to consider is, is, that a James, is James really anti-Pauline? Is it that... Is it really that kind of dichotomy that we tend to set up a lot of times? Um, for Paul, works, when he talked about works, he was speaking specifically about the Torah um, and the obedience to the Torah. He wasn't talking about doing good or you know some of the examples here. Uh, if you find a brother or sister naked and lack daily food, and not and intending to them. That's not what Paul means when he's talking about works. He's talking about works of the law, following all 613 commandments of the Torah, which Paul makes a case. We don't need to make that our prime focus anymore because Jesus, all right? <clears throat> For James, works means something different. Works means the living out of the faith. And again, as we've said before, these letters coming when they're coming in the early church, Jesus has not come back yet. Generation, the whole generation of people has grown up without Jesus coming back and some have died. They are having to learn how to live long term as followers of Jesus. They can't just wait for Jesus to come back. So for James, works was how do we live out our faith in light of that reality? Um, and again, this letter is not the, the intro to Christianity level. This is higher level Christian thinking for people who... Are, who, are, are, who believe in Jesus but have not quite yet translated that into everyday living. So, I would suggest to you that the dichotomy that we tend to place James and Paul in is a little misguided. Um, I think they would probably agree on more than they would disagree. Um, if, they, if they did what we can't seem to do in 2019, of actually sit at the table and have a conversation without yelling at each other. But anyway, we can hope about that. So, James advocates that works, not the ritual kind of things, doing them, crossing them off a list, um, that the prophets of old railed on, but the works behavior that reflects love has to align with your faith in Jesus. You cannot be a believer in Jesus and not care for your fellow person, fellow human being. You just... You can't. They're, you know, you can't do that. So, on that part in particular, Paul would agree. So that's where they would probably kiss and make up and go grab a beer or something together. I don't know. All right. So I always like to dig into that a little bit with James because James does get a, what I consider to be a little bit of a bad rap. Um, I really think that they are probably more along the lines than they think they are.
Okay. Latter part of James um, celebrating life as a community, and he lifts that up. We've encountered this before. Um, caring for those in need. If you're suffering, you should pray. If you're cheerful, you should sing songs of praise. If you're sick, you should call for the elders of the church to go anoint them. This is also an indication about a much later writing than probably if we thought that James' brother Jesus wrote because there would not have been elders in James' brother of Jesus's time and leadership of the church. And then uh, if, uh, if you have anything to confess, to confess to each other and pray for each other. Um, to that confession point, um, I want to share with you, and I think I may have talked about this in a sermon one time. If, if not, you, you might hear it at some point. So just um, pretend like that would be the first time you've heard it. I want to read this to you. It's a little long, but it's, it's well worth it. Um, this is a, a book that came out in the late 90s, Blue Like Jazz by Don Miller, who's sort of a, 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 I don't know, just a Christian thinker. Um, Don was involved in a small campus ministry program at Reed College. Reed College in Oregon uh, was a liberal arts college with the reputation of not being welcoming at all to organized religion and organized religion groups. Um, so with that context, let me read this and you can read along. Each year at Reed, they had a festival called Ren Fair. They shut down the campus so students can party. Security keeps the authorities away and everybody gets pretty drunk and high and some people get naked. The school brings in White Bird, a medical unit that specializes in treating bad drug trips. The students create special lounges with black lights and television screens to enhance the kids' mushroom trips. Some of the Christian students in our little group decided this was a pretty good place to come out of the closet, letting everybody know that there were a few Christians on campus. Tony the Beat Poet and I were sitting around in my room one afternoon talking about what to do, how to explain who we were to a group of students who in the past had expressed hostility towards Christians. Like our friends, we felt like Ren Fair was the time to do this. I said we should build a confession booth in the middle of campus and paint a sign on that said, Confess Your Sins. I said this because I knew a lot of people would be sinning, and Christian spirituality begins by confessing our sins and repenting. I also said it as a joke. But Tony thought it was brilliant. He sat there on my couch with his mind in the clouds, and he was scaring me because for a second, then for a minute, I actually believed he wanted to do it. We are not going to do this, I told him. Oh, we are, Don. We certainly are. We are going to build a confession booth. We met in commons, Penny, Nadine, Mitch, Ivan, Tony, and myself. Tony said I had an idea. They looked at me. I told him I had a stupid idea that we couldn't do without getting attacked. They leaned in. I told them that we should build a confession booth in the middle of campus and paint a sign on it that said, Confess Your Sins. Penny put her hands over her mouth. Ivan laughed. Nadine smiled. They very well may burn it down, she said. Okay, you guys, Tony gathered everyone's attention. Here's the catch. He leaned in a little and collected his thoughts. We are not actually going to accept confessions. We all looked at him in confusion. He continued, we are going to confess to them. We are going to confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. We have been bitter. And for that, we are sorry. 
We will apologize for the crusades. We will apologize for those televangelists who steal people's money. We will apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely. We will ask them to forgive us, and we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented to Jesus on this campus. We will tell people who come into the booth that Jesus loves them. All of us sat in silence because it was obvious that something beautiful and true hit the table with a thud. We all thought it was a great idea, and we could see it in each other's eyes. It would feel so good to apologize for the Crusades, for Columbus, and the genocide he committed in the Bahamas in the name of God. Apologize for the missionaries who landed in Mexico and came up through the West slaughtering Indians in the name of Christ. I wanted so desperately to say that none of this was Jesus, and I wanted to desperately to apologize for the many ways I had misrepresented the Lord. I could feel that I had betrayed the Lord by judging, by not being willing to love the people He had loved and only giving lip service to issues of human rights. So we set to work on the confession booth throughout the beginning of Ren Fair, and people looked at us over the first couple of days with both curiosity and amusement. The further along we got on the booth, though, the more I began to wonder if our idea was such a hot one. As we began to put the finishing touches on it, I was in the process of telling Tony that I didn't want to do this. And then someone opened up the curtain and walked in, saying they were our first customer. What's up, man? Duder sat himself on the chair with a smile on his face. He said his name was Jake. I shook his hand because I didn't know what to do, really. So what is this? I'm supposed to tell you all the juicy gossip I've done at Ren Fair, right? No. Okay, then what? What's the game, he asked. It's not really a game, more of a confession thing. You want me to confess my sins, right? No, that's not really what we're doing. What's the deal, man? Well, we are a group of Christians here on campus, you know. I see. Strange place for Christians, but I'm listening. Thanks, I told him. He was being very patient and gracious. Anyway, this is a group of us, just a few of us, who are thinking about the way Christians have sort of wronged people over time. You know, the Crusades, all that stuff. Well, I doubt you personally were involved in any of that. No, I wasn't, I told him. But the thing is, we are followers of Jesus. And we believe he represented certain ideas that we have not done a good job at representing. He has asked us to represent him well, and we failed him in that. I see, Jake said. So, there is this group of us on campus who wanted to confess to you. You are confessing to me? Jake said with a laugh. Yeah, we are confessing to you. I mean, I am confessing to you. You're serious. His laugh turned to something of a straight face. I told him I was. He looked at me and told me I didn't have to. I told him I did, and I felt very strongly in that moment that I was supposed to tell Jake that I was sorry for everything. What are you confessing, he asked. Well, there's a lot. I will keep it short. Jesus said to feed the poor and heal the sick. I have never done very much about that. Jesus said to love those who persecute me. I tend to lash out, especially if I feel threatened. Jesus did not mix his spirituality with politics. I grew up doing that. I know all this was wrong, and I know that a lot of people will not listen to the words of Christ because of people like me, who know him, carry out our own agendas into the conversation rather than just relaying the message Christ wanted to get across. So I've not been a good follower of Jesus. There's a lot more, you know. It's all right, man, Jake said very tenderly. His eyes were starting to water. Well, I said, clearing my throat, I'm sorry for all of that. I forgive you, Jake said, and he meant it. Thanks, I told him. He sat there and looked at the floor and then into the fire of a candle. 
It's really cool what you guys are doing, he said. A lot of people need to hear this. I don't know whether to thank you for that or not, I laughed. I have to sit here and confess all my crap. He looked at me very seriously. It's worth it, he said. He shook my hand, and when he left the booth, there was somebody else ready to get in. It was like that for a couple of hours. I talked to about 30 people, and Tony took confessions on the picnic table outside the booth. Many people wanted to hug me when we were done. All of the people who visited the booth were grateful and gracious. I was being changed through the process. And I think those who came into the booth were being changed too. So I, 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 I like to lift that story up because I could see that being something that James, I could see that being something that James meant when he said, confess your sins to one another. And, and I just think that's, a healthy thing for people of faith to be doing anyway. Certainly we have much to confess, not just about what we have done individually or not done, but about what others who confess Jesus in the same way that we do have done or not done. So anyway, um, just thought I'd lift that up for you. You can take that home and that'll be online as well, digitally. All right, so moving on to Jude. Um, Jude is uh, the subject of a very well-known Beatles song. Also, it is a very short letter in the New Testament. Uh, really don't know where this thing lands as far as when it was written. Um, late 1st century, early 2nd century is our best guess. It's only 25 verses long, so it is not even bothered to appear in chapters. Uh, the writer identifies himself as a brother of James. Again, ties back to Jesus, but as with James, we are fairly certain that this comes much later than that lifetime, that generation. It's really not much of a letter, more of a brief tract, if you will. Imploring the beloved uh, followers of Jesus to avoid the influence of an unidentified, unidentified group of folks known or referred to as the malcontents, which is great. That could be like a punk band or something like that. Probably is, actually, now that I think about it. Um, Unlike some of the other folks that letter writers uh, warn people about or chastise them for succumbing to, uh, it's not really false doctrine that these people are preaching and teaching. It's just that they do not behave very well. So here are some of the behaviors that are mentioned. <laughs> Fairly specific. Uh, licentiousness is just a great, a great verb. <laughs> Defile the flesh, reject authority, slander the glorious ones, grumblers, <laughs> indulge in their own lusts and bombastic in speech. I just listed a few. So. The writer of Jude is basically calling these folks out and for these reasons that he lists very well. Um, One thing even in the 25 verses that we do get from Jude is the writer is very very well versed in the Hebrew Bible. Um, So some of the images that we we find um, are uh, a few uh, Individuals that are referred to to sort of explain or uh, identify the malcontents. Cain, uh, the murderer. 
uh, Balaam, who before he did follow God's word or God's desire to not curse the Israelites, but in fact to bless, bless them, um, he was a seer, a diviner who, who profited from uh, uh, prophesied for gain. And then uh, Korah, who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness sojourn. Um, that in the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, who was the guy that plays Korah? He was that little guy. You see? Ah. Is that who it is? Yeah, just that sort of annoying, I forget who the actor is. He's a well-known actor. Um, but uh, yeah, they cast that one well. So, um, so just, just to say that as Jude is sort of exposing these malcontents and calling them out, he's referring, he's tying back to some uh, less than desirables from the Hebrew Bible to sort of relate to that. Okay, another thing we find here, we also found in uh, Hebrews, incidentally, is this character Enoch. And in Jude, we find just a couple of verses uh, midway through from uh, this book, First Enoch. Now, you might recall from Old Testament class, we spent a little bit of time, like a very little bit of time, talking about the apocalyptic books. Um, and this First Enoch is one of them. Um, that is not in our canon, it is in the Catholic Bible. Um, but the person Enoch was a great-grandfather of Noah listed in the genealogy in Genesis 5. So we get a shout-out here in Jude, a shout-out in Hebrews, and that cloud of witnesses, and that's pretty much, pretty much it. So um, it, it, it is interesting that these writings that are written more towards a very general audience are tying back uh, to something that gets very little press time in what we would consider the Old Testament. But you can see how uh, the, 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 the um, connections are expanding. So that's basically what Book of Jude does. Okay, moving along. First Peter. Some people believe this was the Apostle Peter, but as we found before, mostly it was a pseudonymic writing written around the latter part of the first century, most likely written from Rome. It was written to a Christian community that was undergoing trials um, that were, we aren't sure exactly whether it was like legitimate physical bodily harm persecution by the Roman Empire or whether it was just ostracization by being followers of Jesus in an overwhelmingly pagan society that people just didn't pay the mind and all that kind of stuff. Um, in, in, in this era of the church, uh, we find that there's, in, in, uh, there's both instances. There's actual physical persecution of, of, of Christians. We, are, we know that you know, Jesus wasn't the only one hung on a cross. Um, and, uh, but also uh, persecution in the sense of being shut out, like not, not being able to engage in the commerce of the day because they proclaim Jesus as Lord. Both are bad, but you know, one's life and death and one's... Um, discrimination, if you want to look at it that way. 
Um, one of the things, the other things that First Peter does is it uses exile language. So it kind of references uh, um, um, image-wise uh, back to the exile and the period when the Israelites were taken to Babylon um, and were, were, they were able to live. They weren't enslaved, um, but they, 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 they were sort of second-class citizens, and so it kind of engages that. So, we, yeah, basically talked about that. Didn't have a home, didn't belong. Um, so the writer of First Peter uses exile to describe the current situation that, that followers of Jesus were facing. Um, so the letter begins with, to the exiles in dispersion. So you picks up on that image right from the very beginning. Um, also reflected the fact that, you know, we know this, the church was kind of scattered everywhere, all over the place. Okay. Um, one interesting reference in here that again harkens back to Estal is a, a, a reference to the sister church in Babylon. Um, Babylon was code among early Christians for Rome. And this will be something we find when we start talking about Revelation. Um, that when we read about Babylon in here and in Revelation, it's really talking about Rome. Um, but this is a way that they could identify something and call something out without getting in trouble for it, for lack of a better term. Okay? So, again, imperial persecution or societal alienation um, could have been written in the latter part of the first century under the rule of uh, Dominician, who was a really nasty guy when it came to Christianity. He, he did not like Christians and was very hostile toward them. That would have been more of the straight-up imperial persecution. Um, on the other hand, the suffering might have been just this sort of constant clash with the pagan society and, 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 and general Christian vilification. Um, which, just I want to go ahead and say, is not, the Christians are not persecuted today. It's not like that. So, that's not what is happening here. Um, fiery ordeal, we don't know if that's symbolic or if that literally is burning of things. Um, but, whatever it is, Christians are encouraged to remain faithful through that time. Okay? We're going to move along. Second Peter. I got a minute. All right, we're going to go a few minutes after. Hang with me. Um, almost certainly synonymous here. Um, Second Peter was the last book written, 130 CE, uh, is when it is sort of targeted and incorporates large parts of Jude, which we discussed earlier, warns against false teachers. Um, and there's a long description in Second Peter of, um, of what... Uh, what they're like. And um, this is going to take a minute, but I really want to look this up because I think this is pretty funny. Let's see what we got here. You all right? Uh, shoot. Second Peter 2.10. Um, especially those who indulge their flesh and depraved lust and who despise authority. 
Um, these people are, this verse 12, people are like irrational animals, mere creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed. They slander the way do they not understand, and when those creatures are destroyed, they also will be destroyed, suffering the penalty for doing wrong. They count it as a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, revealing in their dissipation while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have trained hearts in greed, accursed children. So, tell us how you really feel. <laughs> All right. Um, hearkening back to something we studied last week about the, about the parousia, reminding people that, yes, we know Jesus hasn't come back yet. Yes, that happened 100 years ago that Jesus died and was raised, and we're still waiting. Hang in there. You can see how a century out, they're probably like, wow, man, what's going on? Talks about signs of the second coming that the writer is sort of interpreting and just continue waiting um, and, and, look, and encouraging people to see things from God's perspective. This is God's timetable, not ours. What seems like a long, long time for us is nothing for God. That sort of thing. Okay? All right. Moving along. Letters from the Jonian community. There are three. Gives us important insight into the Jonian community that we talked about. We talked about John. It's around the turn of the century. These sort of Christians that took Greek philosophy and understanding and merged it with Christianity. Most scholars think that the same people read all three of these letters and that it was not the writer, the Apostle John, or the writer of the Gospel. Uh, early part of the second century is when they're kind of dated. First John. Um, let's see if there's anything you want to... Um, evokes very similar images to the Gospel of John as far as light, darkness, and love. Again, those are recurring themes that we found um, in the Gospel. We find those reiterated here. It's written as a sermon <laughs> against people who used to be part of the community who had removed themselves from the community and it's written against them, which I always laugh when I hear that because it's kind of like, I don't know that that's the most effective way to get them back. Um, <laughs> but maybe that wasn't their intent. That probably wasn't their intent. Uh, two themes that First John is really talking about is the importance of Jesus in the flesh. These secessionists were heavily influenced by Gnostic thinking, which... which was an understanding of Jesus as mostly spirit. All right, um, Christ was uh, not fully human. It was sort of this divine thing that sort of occupied a human body for 33 years, and that was it. Um, and so the fully human, fully God thing was not something that the Gnostics really considered. They're the ones that pulled themselves out of the community, and so the writer John is calling them out in that. Referring to them as antichrists. So, this is the only place in the entire Bible where it talks about the antichrist. And it refers to people who believed in a more spiritual Jesus than a flesh and blood Jesus, fully God, fully human. The only place in the Bible where the word antichrist comes. So, when we get to Revelation, don't say, Steve, where's the Antichrist? Because you won't find it anywhere in Revelation. You find it here, and it's not anything like what we typically think of Antichrist. You know, 
the Omen movies and Damien and 666 on the forehead and all that kind of stuff. That's son of Satan, whatever. It's not Antichrist. It's people that follow the flawed doctrine of Jesus. All right? So feel free in any conversations you have with friends at a cocktail party if you get onto this topic. <laughs> feel free to correct them on what an Antichrist is because this is it. There's no other place. And that's honestly really what I wanted to do in our time here is get to that part. Uh, God is love. We find in 1 John, uh, there's a beautiful section about love being what holds the community together. 2 John, only 13 verses long. So it's basically a tweet. <laughs> we'll look at it that way. We do find uh, the writer identifies himself as a presbyter. So yay. Um, and uh, written, uh, warning against antichrists as well. So we find it in the Johns, who deny Jesus in the flesh. Um, shortest book, 3 John, is the shortest by word count, if you just wanted to know that little bit of information. Um, written to Gaius, uh, so a personal letter to extend hospitality to some missionaries that are coming his way. Make sure you open a door for them. Uh, treat them nice. They're friends of mine. And uh, this is what we do as Christians, is kind of what Third John is. All right. So, next week, the book of Revelation, not Revelations. It's Revelation. So, I would challenge you, um, if you have time over the Thanksgiving holiday, um, if you're not in a turkey coma um, or, or otherwise occupying family, um, to read Revelation cover to cover. And don't worry as much about whether you feel like you understand it because you won't. <laughs> um, don't worry if it doesn't seem to make any sense because it won't. Um, but just kind of read it and sort of imagine that it's a dream because that's really kind of the way that it flows. It, it sort of flows like a dream. You know, when you have dreams and you wake up and you go, I have no idea what that was about. I don't know why I went. I was at the beach. And the next thing I know, I'm playing hopscotch as a six-year-old in my backyard. I, you know, that's the way the dreams roll. That's the way the revelation rolls. Just sort of go with the flow. Go with the flow. Uh, cover to cover if you're able or not. It's fine. And then we'll uh, dive into that the next two times. Okay. And we won't run through books as quickly. <laughs> All right. Thank you all so, so much. And appreciate your extra seven minutes of time today. Thank you. Yeah.